Thanks, Gemma. Hello, good morning. You're very welcome to the programme. Between now and nine, farmer protests Europe-wide and nationwide. What have they achieved? Host on a rocky coast, the lighthouse keeper turned hotelier. And Brenda dusts down some history in the attic. It has just occurred to me that there's a little bit of a spring cleaning theme to this morning's programme, but please feel free to completely ignore that nudge and just sit down with a cup of tea and relax. And let me ease you into your bank holiday weekend first with some gentle sounds from the bog of Allen. There is, as you know, of course, a day for just about everything. And yesterday was International Wetlands Day. And volunteers joined members of the Irish Peatland Conservation Council on Lodge Bog in Lullymore, County Kildare, for a morning of work cutting back the trees and the shrubs that are invading the raised bog. Nuala Madigan from the Conservation Council first took me to a bit of bog to show me what kind of vegetation they don't want. Very densely overgrown now, isn't it? It is, it is. But this is natural succession. It's, um, you know, the most successful, I suppose, habitats tend to be uh, woodlands. So if we leave a grassland or a wild area unmanaged, what will happen is naturally, uh, you know, the lower kind of shrub layer, the herb layer, the shrub layer will come in and then that will eventually then move into that woodland layer. So we're in those early stages here. Squelching her way across the bog with a loppers in hand to cut back some encroaching gorse, Melissa is one of the Peatland Council's regular volunteers. I love working outside, I love working in, the, in nature um, and I love the satisfaction of gardening and reaping rewards from the ground. But I guess that's the other thing that's really satisfying about it is you take your eye off the big picture or the new cycle or whatever and you you look at the tiny small beauty in nature that you'd otherwise underappreciate. Without conserved spaces like Lodge Bog, there would be less habitat for endangered species like curlew. These wetlands are also an important breeding ground for species lower down the food chain. Isn't February an important month for frogs? February is uh, the, you know, the Gaelic uh, start of, of spring and of course frogs are emerging from the hibernation at this time of year so they're going to be congregating in our ponds. and Congregating, now that's a very delicate euphemism for what they're actually up to at this time of year. I suppose it is Philip now, so they're looking for partners, maybe that's another description of it. They are, uh, yeah it's their breeding season Philip, so it is. So they'll be, the males will be creating this beautiful chorus, a croaking, they're calling out for uh, the females who, who join them in the water. This throaty rumbling might not get the hearts of female listeners beating any faster, but if you're a common frog, it's like a siren call. Isn't it remarkable to think that they managed to come back on this massive expanse of bog 
to the same little pool of water year after year after year. They do, and they will migrate from the area as well. If we look at frog spawn, there's never just one little egg. You know, there's there's hundreds of them, and frogs do that because they've so many predators out in nature. Uh, I was saying to you earlier on today about the heron that we have visiting the Bog of Allen Nature Centre. When we look at it, you know, if we don't have the slugs and the snails and the mini beasties under our water, you won't have the frogs. And if you don't have the frogs, you're not going to get those larger mammals like our our foxes. We've got birds of prey. Uh, you've got your your herons. You know your buzzards. You've even got your um, hedgehogs sni- as well. H- hedgehogs, yeah, they're all parts they of like this. They like a frog, don't they? I, I, I'm not too sure now. I'm not too sure what hedgehogs actually eat, Philip. Now because you're never going to really find a hedgehog on a bog. <laughs> this is true. Back with the volunteers, the gorse is being cut back because at this time of year it soaks up water that the mosses need and in the summer it presents a fire threat. Chris Logan. And why are you here, Chris? Well, you're outside for a start. And also if you're clearing scrubland and stuff like that, the necessity of cutting stuff back to let new growth through. I mean, nature is by its... Very nature is relentless, isn't it? And the bogs just keep growing. And that's why they need cut down every now and again. Nature is relentless. That's a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. It just does not stop, does it? it? There's nothing you can do to stop it. It's like the seasons and the sea and everything else. just totally relentless. goes on and on. And all you can do is make a partial impact on it. I grew up in Kildare and we used to drive past stretches of bog like this and dismiss them as just, you know, 40 shades of brown, nothing going on there. That was a mistake because when you get down on your hands and knees and when you look closely at what's going on, there's a whole new world opens up beneath your feet. And it's a world that provides us with some really important services, filtering water, storing carbon and providing plentiful sources of food at the base of the food chain for all of those bigger mammals and birds that we all tend to be so much more interested in. There really is a huge amount going on here. The biodiversity out here is fantastic and a lot of them unique. Like, where are you going to find bog cottons? You know, they only grow on bogs. Beautiful yellow star-shaped flowers of the of the bog asphodel, only found on bogs out here. And, of course, you know, the curlew is a, a, a very iconic bogland species. Here we have a pair that come and nest every year out in Lodge Bog. They're just a, a fantastic places and a real opportunity to get away from the hustle and bustle. We don't always have to be rushing around the place take time and stop and just listen Nuala Madigan there from the Peatland Conservation Council and the call of the curlew reminds me of something that we were discussing, a little footnote to an item that we did last week when we were discussing the government's biodiversity action plan. You might remember that I asked all of our contributors that morning what was their litmus test for a successful biodiversity action plan and Una Duggan from Birdwatch Ireland said that for her it would be the return of the hen harrier to healthy numbers. Bad news on that front yesterday. The hen harrier census showed that in the last 25 years, the population has dropped by two thirds. And the way that we're going, it's going to be extinct within 25 years. 
Uh, my thanks to Nuala Madigan and the Irish Peatland Council Conservation uh, volunteers for giving me the tour of Lodge Bog yesterday morning. So from spring walks to spring cleaning next, do you have old photographs, newspapers, diaries, posters belonging to your family going back over generations? Maybe they're in an old shoebox at the back of the wardrobe or hidden away in the attic or put out to pasture in the shed. Well, it is time to take them out, dust them down and give them a little bit of love. That's what residents of Dunleary Rathdown County have been encouraged to do. And earlier this month, the DLR had a People's Archive Day. A call went out to them to bring their personal and historic records and share the stories behind them. The event took place in Dunleary County Hall with experts on hand to provide practical information and advice on caring for your family memorabilia. Brenda Donoghue went along to hear some of the stories behind the items and what they revealed to us about our past. Well, my name is the same name as on the, the billhead there, Peter O'Brien, and we're part of a dairy family that uh, would have delivered milk and butter to houses in around Dunleary. The photographs here of the old farmyard there, Aww. which is only about less than a mile from us here. You can see my grandmother yeah. and the working dog not allowed into the house. And uh, the churns in the background there, you can see the old churns and they were sparkle in the sun because cleanliness was of the utmost importance. Because if you delivered sour milk or milk out of a churn or a tilly can that wasn't to scratch, you know, you'd lose the business and and that was important. Fantastic. Now he's taking out more stuff. What what have you got there? What have you got? this (laughs) This is a very interesting piece. It's a letter relating to my great grandfather dated the 16th of May 1916. It more or less the summary is that our client, my great-grandfather, is looking for compensation because uh, the field he was renting, 26 acres at the time, was uh, occupied by the artillery unit of the uh, British Army who came over to secure Dublin during the uh, 1916 arrives. They would have come in here in Kingstown. They ploughed up the field with the artillery, the guns and the, the horses. He's looking for compensation because he has nowhere now to graze his cattle. And then we have the replies then from Colonel Montague Bradley that it was not accepted. So he didn't get any compensation. So your connection to everything you've brought in today, how does it make you feel? It does mean that I have material that I can pass on to the next generation and remind them where they came from and, and how proud we are and that we're part of a community that we supported each other. Presiding over the proceedings today is Deirdre Black. You're the heritage officer here with Dunleary Ratdown. Are you delighted with the turnout so far? Utterly delighted. There were people here before we even opened the doors and we've just had, since we started at 11, we've had a steady stream of people coming in. So we're, we're beyond delighted. Talk me through the idea behind it. You know, we all go to libraries and museums and archives to look at old things that connect us to the past, but most of us have a lot of those things at home. We have a whole series of experts here, um, archivists, local historians, paper conservators, even an archaeologist, in case you have something really old, and they're here to advise you on how to care for those very, very special things so that they will last into the future. Hi, my name is Noreen Kearns. 
I've brought along a collection of memorabilia from my mother's time in Carisford Training College. That's teacher the teacher tra training. Teacher, teacher training, training college. college yeah. uh, she graduated from there in 1935. Wow. So, <laughs> <laughs> what was your mother's name, first of all? Her name at the time was Nellie Sharp, and she really? later married and became Nellie Whistler. You have an awful lot of folders and annuals and photographs have, here. Yeah. What stands out? This book, of it's a sample book of needlework, sewing and knitting. They had to learn how to teach girls how to sew and knit. They had to be able to turn a heel on a sock <laughs> <laughs> so they could look after their man, probably, <laughs> make socks with the man. So this is all written in the old Irish script that I don't know if you can read it. No. I certainly find okay. it difficult because it was gone by the time I was... Wow, look at her handwriting. Yeah, it's so neat. When I look at this and the writing and the detail, what an extraordinary woman yeah. your mother must have been. Oh, she was, yeah, very extraordinary. Mm. She started life in, in England. She was born in England to an Irish mother and an English father. Sadly, her mother passed away when my mother was seven. And my mother and her two younger brothers were sent back to Ireland to be raised by their aunties. They were raised in Kilmainham and went to Basin Lane School. The nuns there recognised that my mother was quite bright. So they made sure that she did scholarship exams and to go to secondary school. Because her family, would, they wouldn't have had, they, they were comfortable, but they couldn't afford fees for secondary school. So my mother got a corporation scholarship and at some point the nun from the secondary school called to the door and said, Nellie is to be a teacher. So that's how she ended up in Carisford then, again on a scholarship. It's nice to see that other people outside of my family are interested in this. I'll carry on minding it carefully, keeping it hopefully for maybe future generations or maybe pass it to a museum or something if they were interested. These are letters from my grand-uncles who emigrated from Dunleary, first to New York, and he married a girl called Kate McCall in New York, and then moved out to Vancouver Island on the other side. My name is Jim Bourne, fifth-generation Dunleary man. I've bought posters from all the different concerts. Anything jump out? This, this one here is amazing. Oh, be careful opening that. 1936. It includes all an awful lot of... It's local. a pantomime. Read it out to me there. A pantomime. January the 19th to February the 2nd, 1936. You weren't in it, no? Unfortunately not, no. <laughs> it's called the Enchanted Cave, Cave in aid of St Michael's Church Improvement Fund. In the town. town Hall, Dundee. How come you kept this or this poster's in your... My grand-uncle was a member of the organised... Of the troop. Of the yeah. troop. How old are they? Old school copy books. We Are they yours? No. <laughs> I'm the, teasing you. I know that. <laughs> Basically, it's a handwritten history of when my uncle Roby grew up in the area. It goes back to a cholera epidemic in the 1800s. This is just a small paragraph of the cholera epidemic of 1847. And this is written by your... Granduncle Roby Bourne. Many of the people were not dead at all when they were buried... But, too true, even in my own recollection, the cholera sheds were in the West Pier a hundred years ago. The sack-em-ups, body-smatchers, paid visits here. 
my grandfather with others used to have to come here to watch at night in their torrents to prevent the students lifting the recently interred bodies in the old graveyard in Kill Avenue. So your great-great-grandfather yeah. would stand guard yes. to stop the body, the body snatchers in the, in the old graveyard. That's his, hand, his that, witness statement. Is that's his always witness statement to us. Wow. He remembers it and he remembers the cholera sheds on the West Pier in Dunleary. You mind all that stuff? I'll do my best. That's a lovely little treasure trove to find in your attic, isn't it? Brenda Donoghue at the DLR People's Archive Day. And they're planning on having more of those events, so keep an eye on their website, dlrcoco.ie. Coming up after the break, nationwide and Europe-wide farmers' protests. Email countrywide at rte.ie. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Good morning, 28 minutes to nine. Welcome back to Countrywide. They're protesting across Europe against excessive regulation which is forcing them out of business. The message is quite clear. Enough is enough. We have a heart, we have a brain, we have a soul and we have our bare hands. We are working for this planet. But we are here all together to ask for dignity. We want to make a living out of our, our work. Three weeks of protests by farmers across Europe joined on Thursday night by an IFA demonstration of solidarity. Was it about solidarity with French farmers, though, or was it about sending a message to the Irish government? What brought Irish farmers out in every county around the country? Hannah Quinn Mulligan spoke to those rallying in Limerick. It's a chilly February evening here in County Limerick and there's about 40 tractors lined up. You can hear them, you can hear they're getting a lot of support as well. But in charge of the Limerick run is the chairman of Limerick IFA, Sean Lavery. Sean, why have you come out tonight? Why are you here? The the purpose of this, primarily it's in solidarity with our European farmers who've been mounting similar protests across Europe for the last uh, three weeks. Uh, All have similar gripes, different gripes but similar gripes because uh, increased, um, what would you call it, bureaucracy, um, the, the, the increased paperwork, and some of the regulations that have been put in place. Hello, how are you? Do you want to say a few words? I'm People got, should recognise the amount of red tape, the environmental issues. You know, there's a lot of work going on in farming. And I suppose, really, it's going to be a lonely job. And all you now see is the inspectors or the county council all coming to check up on you. Like, what one thing would make a difference to you? More sensible red tape. I mean, we all see the environment has to be looked after, but it has to be more sensible, it has to be more user-friendly. User Come on over, tell me, well, what are you doing here? This is by the side of the road, what is it, nearly 8 o'clock at night with all your tractors, what are you doing here? We're down with loads of tyres and loads of dung tonight. You are not? <laughs> with it. So, a load, load of dung, so you've seen the French protest, so is that why you're here? Yeah, we came down to follow up the French protest with loads of dung and loads of tyres. And what's, what do you actually want, though? What do you actually want to prove by being out here? <laughs> Produce the crack tax and the green diesel and get, uh, get better prepared for our uh, products. Looking to reduce the inputs and uh, get more money for outputs, I suppose. And what kind of farming are you doing at home? Dairy farming. Dairy farming. And yeah. do you do anything else as well? Yeah, machinery contracting and slurry contracting, yeah. 
You're, you're quite young to have all them shooting. How old are you? 22. 22. So you must hear a lot of farmers go visit a lot of farms. Like, what's the feeling from the farmers that you visit? So look, everyone wants the same thing. They all want more money for the milk and more better prices for beef and... Just a, yeah, exactly. And for the government to reduce the tax of the diesel. So, walking on a bit further, and apparently there's 100 tractors here now. Well, I think it's important to highlight some of the issues that are facing agriculture at the moment. Um, we're hearing about expansion to Dublin Airport recently to bring in more planes, and as an industry, we're being told we have to reduce. And I, we don't mind playing our part, but everybody has to play their part. And... Uh, you know, I think it's important to highlight the issues. You know, we all like to go to Spain on our holidays, but we need to be able to get food on the table as well. And I think that's a very important issue that needs to be spoken about, you know. Who's this next to you? Well, this is my daughter, uh, Ruby. But sure, I mean, like, this is the future. So it's important to bring the future along because it's not just for me I'm doing it. It's for the next generation as well. It's important to highlight these issues, you know. Ruby, what's your favourite part about farming? Um, I love seeing all the animals. And what kind of farming are you doing at home? So we're tillage and beef, you know, tillage and beef. Do you feel supported by the current political system? I think the current political system has become a yes person for the European Union. And um, I think we have, we've just rolled over on all European policy. We saw what happened in Britain two years ago. And if we keep getting policy forced upon us from Europe, like, are we going to be in a situation where we, we've not only uh, the UK coming out of, of, of Europe, or maybe Ireland are going to look to come out? Hannah Quinn Mulligan talking to demonstrators in Limerick. Joining me now from France is Aline Brown-Steffer from the Farmers' Organisation, Coordination Rural. And from County Cavan, I'm joined by Agriland columnist and former Macron Affirma president, Thomas Duffy. Very good morning to both of you. Uh, Aline, first off, I have to say, incredibly unfortunate state of affairs that the first two people that a proud French woman has to talk to this morning are two Irish men. Yes. Hello, Philippe. Good morning. Um, well, you know, um, in solidarity with uh, the with the French farmers, I, I guess uh, our rugbymen put their skills on strike. Maybe. Um, oh, yeah. And oh, <laughs> um, the things that you have been protesting against, Aline, um, have been problems for years. Why has this protest become so large now? So uh, what we're witnessing um, over the last 30 years, um, you know, with with the the cap, and this is uh, what our organization has uh, been fighting for for years, is um, uh, it's it's going towards uh, the disaggregatization of agriculture. And it's it's a real big problem in Europe um, because the farmers are being sacrificed for the sake of free trade. Um, Their income has been crippled. And so, you know, enough is enough. Um, they they can't produce anymore, um, and obviously you know the the election of the um, uh, the MEPs uh, coming up is also playing a huge role uh, because they want to make their voices heard um, before these elections. So yeah, this is I think you know this enough. It is enough. I, I've heard you know the, the the Irish farmers saying that too, and and I think that's something that's shared all across Europe. So it's not a fear that farmers and farming is going to disappear, but that the commercialization, the industrialization of farming means that the family farm is at risk. 
Well, yes, that too. Obviously, you know that farming is a way of life rather than a, a, a job. And uh, what what all these uh, norms and all this regulation is doing is is in fact, like like you said, uh, it's really um, you know signing the end of of this family farming, which we are all really attached to, and I think the consumer as well. Um, so yeah, obviously, this is something that's um, fearful to farmers, and uh, because it's it's such a it's regarding their way of life and not just a job. Um, so, yeah, mm. I think... You're right. The family farm is something that everybody supports and attaches themselves to, consumers and politicians alike. But when you break down into the individual issues that are coming up in the protest, they become a little bit more sticky. Like, specifically, I'm thinking about the French farmer grievance with uh, Ukrainian grain and poultry imports. Surely French farmers should be showing solidarity to Ukrainian farmers in a war zone right now. Yes. Um, so obviously, you know, farmers are very much uh, in solidarity with the Ukrainian people. However, uh, they do not believe that they should pay the price of this war. Uh, and, and, you know, the speculation that has been going on in 2002, where the grains were actually the stock were really high. And it was actually the speculators that ended up, you know, um, uh, creating this whole price crisis. And so we're not sure that it's the actual Ukrainian farmers and people who are benefiting uh, uh, from this. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something we're really fighting, the financialization of agriculture and, you know, mm-hmm. the, this this uh, created crisis. Uh, Who, whoever whoever is benefiting, yeah. Aline, though, Ukrainian farmers well, w- w- would definitely lose out if France was to try and insist on the imposition of taxes on Ukrainian grain. Well, I mean, it's it's something that uh, will probably benefit more speculators than Ukrainian farmers because they are the ones, you know, um, uh, speculating, creating stock and, and releasing them like step by step. I, I don't believe uh, Ukrainian farmers uh, will will benefit from, okay. from what will lose so much from, from it. So, yeah. One of the things that all, all of these protests, be they in Limerick or in France or in Brussels, have in common is a complaint that farmers are making about the degree of regulation that they find themselves burdened with. Is that a code for you're tying our hands behind our backs with all of this environmental rules and regulations? Well, it's uh, not so much, you know, about the environment, because obviously, you know, farmers, they are outside every day. So the environment is very precious to them, too. Uh, what's what's really frustrating them, I believe, is is more the, the amount of uh, administrative work that comes with it and the, the amount of control uh, that that goes with it. You know, it's, it's not so much about um, having to do things because they've been doing they've been ca- taking care of the environment for hundreds of years. But it's now they've been being scrutinized and they have to to justify their every movement and, I, and that I believe is is really okay. what they are uh, you know complaining about and, and rightfully so let me bring in Thomas Duffy on that one now what do you think Irish farmers are really saying when they say they're subject to too much regulation Thomas 
No, I don't think they're they're particularly objecting to the the need to do more for the environment because every farmer I speak to really does talk about that. It, indeed, um, it, the administration really is the issue there. And I'll, I'll give you a simple example. For instance, one of the things that the uh, Brussels protests achieved for those farmers was the four percent uh, a derogation or a, a delay to a four percent obligation to have biodiversity in Ireland. For instance, we're already at ten percent, so we've never looked for that derogation whatsoever. We already have 10% of our lands for biodiversity. So there's a simple example of what we, what the Irish farmer is already doing. But the problem is the amount of paper filling, the amount of uh, obligations that we have to do. And often there isn't an, uh, enough of an effort to simplify that down into a, a simple structure. Like when I speak to farmers, I mean, nitrates is obviously a very key issue around. Um, one of the things that, that frustrates an awful lot of farmers is the farmers who are doing it right, who are, you know, completing everything or do, doing everything right, they're saying, well, why aren't there more inspections for bad practice, uh, you know, out there and lave off the administrational side, get get boots mm. on the ground and get more inspections that way. So I think that's really where some of the frustration is coming. And then in addition to that, farmers are, are particularly even these protests and all farmers, they're all saying, look, we want to do our part for the climate. You heard in the Vox Pop there, we want to do our part for the climate, but we want fairness in that. So when we are talking about things like the Dublin expansion or more, I think, urgently at the moment, the, the talk about completing the Mercosur deal, bringing in deforestation beef here, while we're also talking about having to restrict beef output. You've been writing in the journal.ie about whether these protests mean that Irish farming is lurching to the far right or not, or if it is actually being bandwagon jumped by the far right. Which is it? Yeah, no, it's absolutely the latter. Uh, farmers are as diverse as any group, uh, builders, plumbers, doctors, whoever. You're going to have people across the political spectrum. And the reality is most farmers don't care about the political spectrum. We don't sit down and read our Karl Marx or read our free market Adam Smith stuff. No, what we saw even the other night, we had an organised protest there by the largest farm organisation, the IFA. And all over social media, we had these far right losers, frankly, jumping on uh, the uh, social medias and trying to bandwagon this. Look, they, that's a tactic that they always do. They're looking for people who are frustrated, who are disenfranchised. And that is a genuine feeling that farmers are feeling right now. And they're trying to jump on that to co-opt the, the very large public support that farmers actually have from the public in order to utilise that or maybe win mm. some people over. And unfortunately that, you know, that can be successful if we don't see real policy change from the mainstream organisations or sorry, from the mainstream political parties and ensure that the institutions are working for everybody properly. It's part of a piece, isn't it, that people like me, journalists, love to look at something like a farmer's protest and see it through the prism of globalisation or creeping radicalisation or environmental vandalism or whatever it is. I wonder, is the truth more prosaic, do you think, here? If processors, supermarkets and consumers paid farmers a proper price for their produce, would all of this complaint about regulation just disappear? I think this is really the challenge because farmers are, as we would say, they're in a social contract between the consumers and the state. And generally, I would say Irish farmers have accepted that the, the that contract is that the consumer will not pay the full price and the full cost 
And instead, the, the state has to ensure that it provides enough so that we can continue to meet the very high standards of environmental protection, animal welfare and all of the other things that, that we want to do. But the problem is really that we have had absolute stagnation. We have not increased the common agricultural policy uh, budget. People say, oh, look, it's massive. It's one third of the EU budget. But in reality, it hasn't changed in, in 30 years. And then on top of that, the actual obligations that farmers are trying to do uh, are increasing. Now, th this is really where that conflict comes in between environmentalists and farmers, because some environmentalists, not all, but some environmentalists say, well, that's fine. We'll just take the money from the other aspects of CAP. But they're to try and ensure that, that we continue a productive agriculture. We continue producing food, which is our first job and say, well, we're going to just spend that on environmental things. And that's simply not sufficient. This should not be a competition between environmental protection and food production. And the only way to ensure that is to either increase the amount of money and supports mm -hmm. that farmers are getting for that specific thing to provide for common goods or to reform and ensure that farmers are getting more at the retail. But the problem is there, that's going to cost okay. consumers more. Aline, last question to you. People are suspicious, I think, about what farmers' protests ever actually manage to achieve, that it might just be a bit of a letting off of steam. What concrete results did the protest in France actually secure? Uh, so there has been um, quite a few a few set of announcements made by the prime minister. Um, so they they've agreed that you know the, the, there's too many rules. The simplification um, of um, of the cap, the access to cap, is, has also been um, discussed. And so we have a set of um, of measures that are going to be taken. Uh, even increase, for example, I'm thinking cattle uh, will be given 150 millions more to to help the, the cattle farmers. Uh, but we're really waiting. Right now, the protests on France are not over, but on hold, because mm. we're waiting to see if those measures are actually implemented. Okay. And we're, we're keeping, you know, there's going to be an agricultural fair in Paris at the end of the month. Um, and we, we are currently waiting to see what's happening. And we will decide okay. there whether, you know, uh, the fight will continue or not. On hold and not over. Thank you very much, Aline Pranstef, from Coordination Rural and Thomas Duffy, Agriland columnist. Mad figure now coming at you out of nowhere. Lighthouse tourism attracted 622,000 people last year, according to a recently published figure by the Great Lighthouse, Lighthouses of Ireland Partnership. That partnership involves leasing out properties at a number of automated lighthouses where former keepers' dwellings have been restored by the Irish Landmark Trust. One of the busy hosts of these coastal cottages is Gerald Butler. He was the keeper on Fastnet Rock during the ill-fated 1979 yacht race, but is now attendant keeper at Galley Head, also on the West Cork coast. Butler is a host with fantastic knowledge of that coast as he grew up in Galley Head, where his parents were lighthouse keepers before him, as he told Lorna Siggins during a recent visit. looking out now to a range of about 25 miles and to the east of us there that headland that you're looking at is called the seven heads and you can see a little dip 
slight dip in behind the watchtower out in the out. If you look at that, you will actually see, you'll see the lighthouse at the old head flashing. And yeah. it'll give a second one? Yeah, you can see it, yeah. Yeah, it gives two flashes every 10 seconds. What's wrong with your eyesight? Long may it stay. Thank you that. very much, thank you very much indeed. So we're going into the cottage. Is this one of the cottages where you were reared? reared. Yes, this was our home. It's so lovely, isn't it? Yeah. So there were 17 of you living here? Yeah, not really 17 because by the time the youngest was born, uh, some of the elders were away we're working. Moving out. So there wouldn't have been any more than 12 of us. Okay, at any one time. So <clears throat> a keeper had to be a bit of everything. Oh, a light keeper had, yeah. A light keeper had to be a bit of an engineer, a bit of a meteorologist, a bit of a cook, a bit of a housewife or house husband or house whatever you want to call it and you had to be able to fix something mechanical that would go off the engine failed if the fog signal broke down you had to be able to repair it and you had to be able to paint you had to be able to tie ropes tie knots do seamanship you had to be able to climb you you'd have somebody at a station who was good at one thing at the same station you'd have another fellow who was expert at something else so you had different skills though they didn't carry a trade they nonetheless were maybe even beyond craft beyond postgraduate degrees really <laughs> now when you think of it yeah when you think of it it was and you were know. you ever in a situation where there might be a bit of tension between keepers oh gosh yeah but you learned to you learned to get on this now is the kitchen this used to be an oil store so when the light was electrified my late mother again to the fore asked the Irish lights if they would break in here and give her this as a kitchen because why she wanted it was for the beautiful view beautiful out view. to the west yeah the Irish lights were delighted because it meant that this little wing was going to be maintained yeah this is where my father used to sit looking out that window looking out <laughs> onto those rocks yeah that's called the Dulic Rock where the sea is breaking. So what happened here and how this lighthouse came to be yeah. is back in the year 1871, there were two ships foundered on the head here. There was nobody lost on the two of those sinkings. And then 13 days later, there was a third ship lost in on the Long Strand called the Joseph Sprat. And all hands were lost on that. That matter was raised in the House of Commons then, the three of those sinkings, to know why this light did not go ahead when it was first recommended in 1846 to build a lighthouse here, but it didn't happen then anyway. And uh, then the Irish lights went ahead and built the light. And this lighthouse and this station, everything you're looking at here now, was built by a man called William Martin Murphy. He was the founder member of the Irish Independent, the 1913 lockout man, shall I say, in Dublin a Bantry man, and he's the man who built up this lighthouse. This place is steeped in history. Oh my goodness yeah. me. There about uh, seven or eight years ago, there was a lady there from the UK. Her name is Rowena Riley. And Rowena was doing a research into her family background, found that her great-grandmother came from County Meath. But as a three-year-old child, she was shipwrecked on the Cork coast having sailed from the South China Sea in 1871. The only known ship lost on the Cork coast from way down there in that year was the Joseph Sprat 
when a sailing ship was coming into heavy weather and you had the like of a three or four year old child on it you had to tie the child to the table you had to tie it to the bed you had to tie it to a post or something because when the ship would be heaving in the water that child would be bounced from one side to the other so they tied their child to a closed chest or a closed trunk the ship broke up and sank very very quickly and everybody was drowned but up shot the box with this little girl tied onto it and yeah she was washed up onto the long strand she was taken from there by a family called galway they were landowners in the area at the time in kilkern and over in greenfields and ardfield they got this little girl to be adopted by a prison warden on spike island in cove after this girl moved in with them this man's wife died and he headed back up to county meath from where he came brought the little girl with him she remained in county meath until she was about 14 and then she headed across to london joined in with an irish community in london and eventually forged out a good enough life for herself in as much as she became a nurse uh, she, she was given the name then of minnie thornton she got married and it was the generation coming after her they disposed of the closed trunk that traveled with her and how i would just give my back teeth to get a splinter of that closed trunk because that's a brand new piece of history that Rowena has just uncovered about the galley head yeah the Irish Landmark Trust they kind of partnered up with the Irish Lights because these houses now were becoming vacant yeah my father was dead my mother was uh, now the attendant keeper but she was retiring and moving on herself so the Irish Landmark Trust then looked at this and yes it was quite possible for them to restore it they let it out as a holiday let for you though growing up here now your memories of growing up and then your mother your father and you working as keepers and yeah people coming and staying here how do you find that i always look at it to know anything consider the alternative so when you consider the alternative if this didn't happen most likely a zillionaire from way beyond would probably buy it lock the gates nobody will get to experience it and i'd say i might i do look after the lighthouse i'd say i'd nearly have to get permission to come and look after the lighthouse it's uh, absolutely fabulous to be able to welcome people here from you take now the like of new york um, people come here from such a busy 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 a city and noise and mayhem all around them and they wake up here in the morning after coming and there's nothing not a sound they can hear the seagulls they open the door and they can hear the waves slapping off the shore do you miss not living here uh, yeah even though i live in a, in a lovely place and all that i would give my back teeth to live here would you? yeah yeah, yeah. And it's beautiful at night when people stay here to stand near the cliff wall there with their back to the round wall and you'll see these shafts of light, the five of them, and they're sweeping across the ocean. Massive, big, powerful lights. Mesmerising in a way to see that. Mm-hmm. 
And how beautiful that you don't have to give your back teeth if you want to go and stay there. More details on irishlandmarktrust.com. That was Lorna Siggins talking to Galley Head's attendant keeper, Gerald Butler. In the Countrywide Lighthouse this week, Dave Gibson replaced the light bulbs, Amandine Passo-Devine polished the optic, and Brenda Donoghue guided us away from the rocks and towards safety. Ear to the Ground is on Thursday. Do not forget it, folks. Sinead Mooney is on the way next. But from all of us on Countrywide... Enjoy your long weekend. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Listen back on the RTE Radio Player.